It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. And people are complaining that stores have run out of food and it's nearly impossible to schedule deliveries because couriers can't keep up with the demand. One man in Shanghai documenting the shortages on Twitter says, we had three deliveries that were booked to deliver today. All three were canceled. Social media, videos not verified by NBC News, described as protests by people desperate to get food and medicine. Store shelves cleared out. This man on the street yelling, what am I supposed to buy? What am I supposed to eat? In some areas, drones telling people to stay home. Control your soul's desire for freedom, it says. And in this video, the residents yell at the police at one point. They say, we are starving. All right, that's a report from Shanghai. It was uh, during, and this may still be happening, Shanghai was in complete lockdown. Uh, China adopted this uh, zero policy for COVID. Uh, so there were the video of high-rise apartment buildings with people screaming outside their windows because they could not get out to get medicine. They couldn't get uh, food and all the things that they needed. But the part that you, I hope that you didn't miss, were drones were flying all over Shanghai with this voice saying, control your soul's desire for freedom. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Uh, that's how the Chinese were handling and are handling COVID. Uh, and it really kind of sets us up for our discussion today. Let me just say that you are in for uh, uh, have your mind stretched uh, in a way that will help you understand what's happening in our world, not just this country, but in our world. Uh, my guest is Stella Morabito. She's been with us before. You may recall that uh, once I interviewed Stella, one of the many times uh, she talked about uh, gaslighting uh, that was taken from that movie made in, I think it was the 30s, where uh, the, 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 the star was uh, Ingrid Bergman, and her husband was isolating her and uh, pre cre pre uh, creating a narrative uh, that was false, making her think that she was going crazy because she had no other input. She was not able to hear anything from anyone else. And so she began to believe the things he was saying. It was called gaslighting. Uh, in many ways, that's just a taste of the larger thing that's happening right now. And Stella has just put this in a brand new book. It's just out. It's called The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. And with that, Stella, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, and thank you for having me, Sandy. This is a great opportunity to talk about these issues. Uh, that was an amazing uh, preview that you gave with what's going on in China. Yeah, yeah and, and just kind of a taste of what we're going to talk about. Now, Estella, yes. because we, you and I have talked so many times that I am going to tell them about your background, but I want to do it in story form here because I think it really, the discussion about the book 
will have more impact if they know your background. And I, uh, uh, Stella currently is the senior contributor to The Federalist, and uh, you've uh, perhaps seen her writing lots of places. Uh, she writes essays all the time, uh, and it's always great stuff. Stella, you have the gift of writing the complex and the really, really deep in a way that people can actually comprehend. She's written for the Washington Examiner, American Greatness, Town Hall, Public Discourse, Human Life Review, and I'm sure other things, too. She was also an intelligence analyst for the CIA on Russian and Soviet politics. Uh, But there's a lot more to say about her. And, um, uh, you know, Stella, I remember, you know, we've talked a lot. We've known each other for a long time. And you would describe yourself as a former leftist. Uh, but uh, tell what, how would you why I mean why why that description and what was what were you doing and how were you feeling when you were that Oh Sandy that now see there's an there's a question I wasn't expecting but it's very apropos to what we're discussing because I think that what caused me to you know go off in that direction was a sense of isolation uh, you know and I think that a lot of people who just kind of go with the flow go with the propaganda. Are, are feeling that same kind of thing um, where, you know, this is the conventional, so-called conventional wisdom and, um, and you know, or, or just the, uh, just what the, uh, you know, say smart set or whatever you want to call it is expected to think, expected to say. And I think that that's why we, uh, you know, have, have gotten into, uh, you know, and why things are so bad today. Uh, I wrote this book because one of the reasons I wrote this book is because there are so many insane policies that all seem to be crashing down on us at once. I mean, you look at all of our institutions in medicine, for heaven's sakes, you've got uh, pediatricians uh, basically stating that you have to, you know, affirm the so-called gender identity um, of a child, which is, you know, is indulging the social contagion that caused that child to be so confused. Um, and, and this is happening not just in medicine, of course, in education, all of our institutions. And, and then I, you know, I stepped back and I thought, well, gee, you know, it's just like playing a game of whack-a-mole, a hundred different fronts in this war against freedom. What ties it all together? And in my view, what ties it all together is what I call the weaponization of loneliness. This, um, silence that people feel they need, you know, when, they, when they're fearful of being socially rejected for saying the wrong thing uh, and, and trying to go up against the propaganda machine, uh, that's what really has tied it all together. And that's why there is such, a, such an intense war on free speech. Okay, so that's, that's a great uh, opening paragraph. I mean, really, I, I, and by the way, I just want to interject I've only had a chance to read your your introduction and the beginning, the foreword, and all of that. But uh, I I can't wait to read this, Stella. I you are such a great writer, and you the thing of it is, a lot of people have your intellect, uh, but they write gibberish, or that you can catch a few sentences. And I think sometimes they think that we will think they're smarter because we can't understand it. Uh, I think the sign of great intellect is when you can break something complex down so that regular people can actually understand it, and that's the gift that you actually do have. But please indulge me. I'll go back to your own experience, because I think this is important. You just touched on it. You said, I started down that path out of loneliness. Can you just say something more about that to help us understand why it is that you get this so deeply? 
Oh, well, when you are isolated, and you know, this doesn't really apply as much to people with strong family ties, strong ties of faith. Uh, the impulse is still there, but, but you have, there in the private sphere of life, you develop immunities, more immunities to this self-censorship that goes on with political correctness. And that's why I believe there is such a war against the private sphere of life, against family, faith, communities that are tight-knit and true community. Uh, and now, I, I grew up with a wonderful family, and, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, I, I had really, yeah, I, I have good ties, good friends, and all of that. But in the popular culture, the message that is constantly hammered away at us is, you know, if you don't accept this narrative, we're going to caricature you. We're going to turn you into a stereotype. We're going to we're going to uh, make you feel isolated, alone. And uh, when you get right down to it, the weaponization of loneliness, what I call the weaponization of loneliness, depends on a certain kind of machinery that's out there uh, constantly. And it, it, it's fueled by our conformity impulse. You know, if you ask yourself, how did so many horrific things happen throughout history? Well, you know, it, 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 it's all, it all happens through the silence that the vast majority impose on themselves so that this little minority of control freaks you know, managed to take over. It happened in the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, the, you know, in Hitler's Third Reich. It happened in Mao's China. It keeps happening. Uh, people are sensing that it's starting to happen. It was starting, has started with this so-called Great Reset uh, and, you know, this whole New World Order business where, you know, everything is supposed to be centralized by this one oligarchy of power elites uh, to kind of control everybody's life. Um, you know, through, uh, you know, cutting off supplies of energy and, you know, making us totally dependent. But I'm sorry if, I'm, if I seem to be veering away from your initial question, which is, you know, how it affected me. And, and I guess the reason I think I can write about this is because I did experience it. Um, you know, I just had a, a friend on Facebook, well, you know, somebody I hadn't seen in a really long time who, uh, I, you know, was a housemate of mine in college. And she just overheard a radio show with me a few years ago and was just kind of, you know, pleasantly shocked that uh, she saw that I had, quote, switched sides. And, <laughs> um, you know, it, it was it was just kind of, it was interesting to kind of go back and forth with her a little bit because she does remember me and, you know, the college years and, you know, being, um, you know, pretty much in my view, kind of a closed-minded leftist. But, um, you know, I was a cheerful, I mean, you know, I, I was not uh, hostile to people. I just had this mindset. And it's a mindset that is not as, it's not going to be as prominent where there's free speech, where people are allowed to have open conversations and really get at the truth. And, uh, and so that, that's part of it. Another part of it is, um, you know, being cut off from content knowledge, say, in 
you know, in school where they teach you. And I didn't really, I mean, I'm a different, different generation, but I grew up in Southern California where they were starting all these experimental sort of, uh, you know, social studies kinds of programs that didn't get as crazy. It wasn't as crazy as it is today, but a lot of the experiments started there. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, being cut off from uh, at least in the early stages of the, just the great concepts of Western civilization and all of that. Uh, you know, it, it has an isolating effect as well. So let's stop there. Well, this this is something that um, in your prologue you write, because I, it's funny, I always write my questions before I read the book. I write on the knowledge that I do have because I think it helps. It's questions that everyone would ask. Uh, but then I start to read, and I realize you answered one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Stella, and that is, how in the world this topic, you know, with uh, with your mind being what it is, your degree being what it is, uh, I think it was on Russian and uh, whatever. We can, we'll talk about that because I want to get into the what you touched on, which was what happened in other totalitarian places. But you talk yeah. about how, just uh, talk about this story, the very beginning of your prologue about this, in 1970, about this 13-year-old girl, about that you oh. followed this story and you were fascinated with it. Can you tell us that story? Oh, my. Yeah, I was uh, really gripped by it. In 1970, I grew up in a town called Temple City uh, in California, Southern California. And uh, about a mile or so from my house, there was a, a you know, big story broke. There was this little girl, little, I mean, she was 13 years old, who was discovered. It became a national news item. I remember Walter Cronkite actually talking about about her. And um, she was uh, confined for 12 years. And she was like, uh, I guess she must have been 18 months old or so when her father confined her to this bedroom in the back of the house for 12 years. Uh, and uh, she was discovered, it, you know, it's a long story, you know, how the, the mother got out. The mother and the brother were the only other ones in the household. And, Stella, uh, we, we are was up, allowed to talk with her. We are, we are really, up against she, a break. Said, Go ahead, but she okay. grew up and she, she was just ruined for life, really. She never recovered, right? Yeah, couldn't speak. Couldn't, And so that's what piqued your interest about this whole business of loneliness. It sets the stage for the book, which is called The Weaponization of Loneliness. Our guest is Stella Morabito, the author. And when we return, it's just fascinating, folks, so don't go anywhere. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Now, our first question, one plus one. Yes. Two. Incorrect. Yes. Multiculturalism. Well done, Simon. Next question. What is three times three? Yes? Nine. Wrong. Yes, Penelope. Gender equality. Very good, Penelope. Is this a joke? Do you think gender equality is a joke? No, but isn't this a maths class? Don't be so racist. I just asked a question. We don't ask questions. Questions are offensive. All right, that's a clip that we've played many, many times because it's a great example. It comes from a, a website, I think it's called Education, but it's spelled 
E-D-U-C-A-Y-S-H-U-N. It's really fascinating because it really lays out the propaganda, especially in public schools, but also for all of us. Uh, Stella's book, Stella Morabito, our guest, is The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. So, Stella, let's um, let's talk about how this has manifested itself in our country. Uh, you said it didn't just start. We've been on a trajectory. Can you kind of talk about that and then uh, tell us where we are now and how we could kind of spot that and how they're using it? Oh, sure. Uh, well, this well, it, it's been about 100 years since this uh, project uh, out of the Frankfurt School got started. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that, but these were a bunch of uh, academics uh, that came over from Frankfurt and kind of made their home at uh, you know Columbia University, and they were pretty much cultural Marxists, which meant that they they took a page out of the Italian communist uh, Gramsci, who who stated that the war nobody's really going to pay that much attention to the economic issues. They weren't making any traction in Europe with socialism after the Bolshevik revolution, people just wanted to, you know, live their lives, you know, um, in England and Germany and all that. So he theorized that the real fight was on the cultural front. Forget economics. It's all about the culture and, uh, you know, taking over all the institutions of society. And then later on, this uh, radical, uh, another one out of Germany named Rudy Deutschke, uh, came out and talked about the long march through all the institutions. And, of course, uh, it starts with education. Education is upstream from everything else because people have to get credentials, right, uh, in the courts or legislatures, uh, the world of finance, corporate world, um, you know, of course, everywhere, uh, all the um, all the institutions of society. Um, so... You know, once they get a foothold in education, well, it started in universities and then, of course, K-12 education. Uh, And, you know, John Dewey was a philosopher at the time who was looking at education as kind of an administrative sort of utopia, a way to create an ordered society. And and so all of this stuff, the you know, all the, the titans of the time, like you could read about in John Taylor Gatto's book, The Underground History of American Education, um, you know, took off of this idea of creating a, a regimented society, uh, kind of in a utopian sort of uh, thing where they would just kind of select winners and losers in the education system. Uh, and uh, so anyway, you, you have this whole this whole vision has a very long history in America and of course has a very long history in human history, especially modern history, starting with the French revolution. Um, But uh, you know, where, where you have this minority, this core of elites who think they know best uh, how everybody should live their lives. And wouldn't it be great if everybody did things this way and so they, you know, they decide they have a plan for your life. Uh, and, um, and, and, and they, you know, also take on this sort of religious veneer as well. But, you know, the government, in a sense, becomes, um, you know, kind of a religious 
it's supposed to be kind of a religious uh, relationship that the, the citizen or the subject has with the government. So this, this thing has a long history. And so that's why, Stella, for instance, when we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the summer before 2020, I think that was when it hit its apex. Yeah. And you had white students and white people being forced to bow and apologize for their whiteness. It became kind of a ritual, like a religious experience, like you have to repeat this. And then you had students like chanting things. So you remember that? I wish I hadn't oh, yeah. pulled one of those clips. And isn't that, is that what, is that kind of what, like, the part of the religious exercise? Oh, yeah. Um, it, you know, the whole, the whole mob mindset, cult mindset, uh, you know, people have a very strong, hardwired need to connect. Uh, that's, you know, that, that, that's at the bottom of this. I think the, the radical utopians, radical socialists, whatever you want to call them, have consciously or not, They've glommed on to that. They know that that is uh, a way that you can control people is uh, through their need to connect, whether it's a need to connect, um, you know, with religion or, you know, the transcendent or a need to connect with other people. And we do have this deep seated need. We were created. I mean, the epitaph for my book, my entire book, is taken from um, Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. We know this at the very core of our being. And so threats to ostracize us, socially reject us, cast us into the outer darkness, have an enormous impact on our behavior. We all kind of know that instinctively, but I wrote the book to try to help people see it more consciously to understand that this effect of the draw is so powerful because it's just so hardwired into us. We were created for connection with God. We were created for connection with other people. And, and, uh, and so the threat to turn us into a caricature, ridicule, um, you know, all of that is an extremely powerful weapon for social control. And I, I, I try to lay that out in terms of the history, the science of the conformity impulse, as well as the cultural, um, you know, events that are, the, right. you know, the trends. Okay, so let's get practical because this is, rather than just a theoretical, which I know you don't, which is great, but let's go right <laughs> to an example that every single person listening to us can relate to. How did the elites use the weaponization of loneliness in the COVID pandemic? How did um, the power, you you, you had a name there. Elites, I said elites. Oh, just the power elite. Oh, how did they use COVID? Oh my goodness. All right. Well, in many, many different ways, but uh, primarily through, you know, Stating that if you did not bow down to these mandates, you were endangering the lives of others. You were actually endangering your own, yourself. And, you know, you go to that intense uh, fear of separation, which is death. Uh, and, and that's a use of terror. And they, use, they terrorize. They literally terrorize, terrorized Americans. You know, in good faith, we complied at the beginning. But it became pretty obvious to most thinking Americans that there is something totally wrong with this. So they used it to terrorize us. 
and to um, create hostilities within families, within, you know, among neighbors, among associates. There were, I, I don't know if, you know, how familiar you are with all these hostilities that erupted, you know. Oh, very familiar. <laughs> yes. I'm every, yeah. Stella, oh, everybody knows that. You can't have thing in church. You can't, you know, shut up. You can't go to church. You you, they were separating us and, and they were enforcing our isolation. And in addition to enforcing our isolation, like no distancing and elbow bump, don't shake hands, all this stuff. Remember all that craziness, don't touch your face. All of that were like, uh, you know, you're diseased. And, and so they created this, this um, atmosphere that, that was really poisonous for human relationships. Uh, and, uh, and you had actually families who would refuse to like let, the, the grandparents see the grandkids. Uh, oh, and a horrible, horrible things like people not um, being allowed uh, to see their loved ones, uh, making them die alone in hospitals. Anyway, all of this. So this is, is the ultimate. This seems. This to me. This means the ultimate example, at least for Western America or for Americans right now, or people in the West and in Europe too, for heaven's sake. Uh, I mean, in the Far East, the weaponization of loneliness. It was epidemic everywhere. I just think of that clip I played to begin with in Shanghai where the people were crying mm -hmm. out. Uh, and, and you know, like in these high rises, just screaming at night all alone. It, it was just horrendous what they did to us. And, you know, Stella, the thing of it is I, what you have written here is, I think, uh, I couldn't have written what you wrote. I just want to say, because I am a believer, as you are, you're, I, you have great faith. You're an Eastern Orthodox Christian. We've had great conversations about that. Uh, it did strike me, uh, that verse, that it's not good that man should be alone. And I would say, look, if you punish a child, you send them to their room alone. That's punishment. If you put a prisoner in, uh, in jail, the worst punishment is solitary confinement. What, what are we doing here? This is not good right. for us. This is, this is the opposite of how God has created us. And it has had, it's borne terrible fruits, and I think it will help people understand uh, why. Well, let, let's talk to this. Then how then did they use this to control us, and do you believe they were doing that consciously? And for what purpose? Yeah, wow. Uh, do I well, first of all, consciously. Uh, I think there are some who do it consciously, but uh, the, the trick, I think, for power elites, social control freaks, and all of that, is, is to just get the ball rolling so that others, whether it's in the deep state or, uh, you know, just in uh, society in general, just go along with it. Uh, and, of course, that fear is very, you know, I, I opened my book with that case you talked about in the previous segment uh, of severe isolation. What severe isolation does to a human being, like the, the case of that little girl who they gave the pseudonym Jeannie um, because she was like a genie stuck in a bottle. Uh, you, you can go, we go totally haywire without our social connections. And what they did was enforce um, isolation on us, atomization, you know, just so that we are separated from one another. And one of the points I make comes from the um, this political philosopher, Hannah Arendt, who wrote that epic book in the mid uh, you know, 20th century called The Origins of Totalitarianism. She doesn't dwell on it in her book, but it's an amazing insight that, that she stated there is that terror 
can only rule over people who are um, who are isolated against one another. And so the primary concern of tyrannical government is to bring that isolation about. And I could feel with COVID uh, that isolation was key, you know, having us separated from, you know, and of course in the censorship issue as well, this, you know, these boards of censorship they're trying to create so that we can't even talk to each other anymore. So that, that is uh, intensely destructive for any kind of uh, functioning society. Stella, let me jump in. I'm going to read something you wrote. This is in your, I believe, the introduction, the prologue, not sure. You describe this. You say extreme isolation can render us feral, cut us off from our potential, and disrupt our ability to communicate or even to think. Severe loneliness leaves us in despair, dysfunctional, distrustful, and incapable of communicating. Uh, The stress contributes to a multitude of physical health problems like high blood pressure, heart ailments, dementia, and stroke. You go on and then you talk about actually how uh, it looks as though there's a link between uh, just like schizophrenia, for example, and loneliness. Mm -hmm. Can you just say something Mm -hmm. about that? Oh, yeah, that's another thing that influenced me. Um, There was a book called I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Maybe some of your uh, listeners are familiar with it. It came out, I think, in the 70s. And it was written by a woman named Joanna Greenberg. And she was a severely schizophrenic young woman. Uh, And her uh, therapist, psychotherapist, uh, it took years, but her psychotherapist managed to bring her through uh, to a, a complete recovery. Uh, but she, this, this young woman as a teenager, she had felt so rejected in school and at camp and just had, um, you know, this sense of isolation that, um, just kind of enshrouded her that, and this happens with some people, they, they, they take refuge in their own mind and uh, so she created this world, she called it your, and it had its own language and all, and she just hallucinated uh, all of these people who were her friends, but they did turn on her from time to time to read the book, but who were her friends and she could talk to and there was beauty in the world and everything. And so she, she didn't want anything to do with the real world. And, and so, so like, in, so for, Stella, her sentence, yeah. Well, here's our music. So let me just say, I believe that you you say that this can lead to just mental illness in general. And I think, you know, a lot of us feel yes. like the, our younger kids, our college kids, some of our kids are bordering on there's something really unhealthy mentally going on. And there's a lot of yes. suicide and all of that, which might be explained by what's happening right now with the isolation. My guest is Stella Morabrito. The book is called The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. We'll be right back. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. You, you and Mike Tomlin are two of the few black head coaches in the league. I wonder what your relationship is like with them and your thoughts on Steve Wilkes joining that fold. I have a very good relationship with Tomlin. Uh, we don't look at 
what color we are when we coach against each other. We just know each other. I have a lot of very good white friends that coach in this league as well, and I don't think it's a big deal as far as us being coaching against each other. I think it's normal. Wilkes got an opportunity to do a good job. Hopefully he does it. And we coach ball. We don't look at color. But you also understand that representation matters too, right? And that when young aspiring coaches or even football players, they see you guys, you know, they see someone that looks like them, maybe grew up like them, that has to mean something. Well, when you say you see you guys and look like them and grow up like them, it means that we're eyeballs to begin with. And I think the minute you guys start stop making a big deal about it, everybody else will as well. All right, that was Todd Bowles, the uh, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, with a couple of reporters asking him about uh, the fact that he's black and he was going to be uh, coaching a game against another black coach, and isn't that remarkable? But it's unremarkable, says he. Uh, we don't think about that, and then this white reporter has to follow up. But don't you agree uh, that uh, younger people look to you as a role model for someone that looks like them or looks like you? And he says, what do you mean looks like me? Why are you – we're just – you know, so Stella – you know what? I should let you respond to that. Stella's book is called The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. Just speak to that, and then we'll talk about everything else. Oh, we need so much more of that, what, what he has given us. Um, you know, look, looking at each person as an individual human being and not as some sort of uh, representative of some kind of a demographic uh, you well, know, does, uh, and that, how, that's all part of the dividing, uh, you know, the divisiveness that, that we're seeing, uh, the separation with what I call the three-legged stool of uh, tyranny, uh, identity politics, which is what that coach was, re, you know, dealing with, um, political correctness, which enforces that by inducing us all to self-censor if something isn't, you know, the, the, if we go against the narrative. And mob agitation, which also enforces all of that identity politics and political correctness. All of these three forces play on us to um, keep us divided and to keep us from looking at one another as, as individual human beings who are unique. Uh, and uh, this is exactly, you know, this, this goes against the designs of Alzheimer's. You know, I was just thinking, uh, I'm sure that you're following this, Stella, but on the issue of racism... Uh, the left has actually introduced this in different forms around the globe. Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, and I, I, I wish I could be specific, like in, in uh, Australia, I think it's the, you know, the whites against the Arib uh, uh, Aborigines. And there's a natural look. It's more powerful when there's a natural prejudice, but they stoke it. And so they're creating groups like oh, yeah. China. China, they used uh, bu successful business people. Business people became... Uh, the object of wrath and derision during the Cultural Revolution. Can you give some more examples of that? Oh, yeah. No, the, the, what they're trying to do is to stoke it to the point of uh, just uh, blind rage. Uh, you saw that during the Cultural Revolution in Mao's China when uh, he, and usually they enlist youth, you know, to be parts of, you know, part of the, you know, big mobs. And he had like a million at his first rally uh, to go against what he called the four olds, old, uh, you know, habits and old ways of thinking uh, and, and cold culture and so on. Uh, so he stoked up these mobs to um, literally, literally terrorize people in every walk of life, starting with teachers 
And, uh, you know, a lot of people lost their lives, at least a million due to this, uh, just this mob activity in China where they would be paraded around and dunce capped and ridiculed and some of the better known ones put in stadiums. So this is, this is what a lot of this identity politics is meant to stoke is a kind of a blind rage, uh, one way or the other, uh, trying to trigger, um, just hostilities among us. And, uh, and so, and then of course, with political correctness, that's supposed to enforce it by keeping us silent about it and having us go along with things like critical race theory and, and gender ideology is another way of dividing us. Uh, we'll get into all the complexities of that, but we, we all know where that's going. It's, it's a really, it's really going down a, a very sick road. Um, well, I was so, just let me interject. In Virginia, actually, there there there's a discussion by one of their delegates. I, be, I believe she's a delegate. She could be a congresswoman from Virginia. Where, uh, I'm sorry, I wish I could be clearer, but she is well, trying to criminalize delegate, yeah. parents. She's trying to criminalize parents oh, yeah. who won't go along with, and, oh, yeah. and with potential jail time if they don't allow their children to explore their you know whether they're a different gender. It's getting that bad. Uh, Oh, it is. No, trying to separate children from their parents is an old, old thing. I mean, it, it wasn't just during the Cultural Revolution in uh, China. I mean, it goes back to the French Revolution's de-Christianization campaign where, uh, you know, p- people could uh, actually kill on sight uh, anyone who was considered an anti-revolutionary. Uh, and, of course, it, it, a very blatant war on family happened in um, in Soviet Russia, uh, I have, you know, there's a story about that in my book, uh, you know, with the, uh, the the kulaks who were the peasant farmers who just wanted to farm their own land. And because they were resisting Stalin's uh, plan to collectivize agriculture, they were, you know, they became the enemy. Kulak was a word used to mean counter-revolutionary and seven million uh, were killed in various ways, uh, primarily through a manufactured famine uh, in the winter of 1932, um, 33, um, I believe, 33, 34, uh, in, in, you know, the Ukraine, uh, where, which was, uh, you know, the breadbasket of, um, of Russia. So anyhow, it, it, it has a very long history, trying to separate parents from their children, trying to just stoke these hostilities. Kids come home from college or even just K-12 and they tell their parents or on the wrong side of history, uh, you know, if they don't go along with the, uh, the planet is burning up or the, you know, whatever the narrative is. Uh, so um, this, this, uh, this is something that we really need to solve, I think, in three ways. First of all, I think we need to build awareness of all of these dynamics these processes, the, the methods that are being used. We know, I mean, we know about how ostracism affects us, but we have to build awareness on how it allows for really horrific pathways like totalitarianism to take root if people don't say something. So and, don't, lo- uh, don't, lo- don't, please don't lose your train of thought. I just want to interject. All of your discussions yeah. about gaslighting, you know, I then we talked about that. We had some, you did some briefings on that, which I heard. And then we ended up talking on the air. And then I know other people picked it up. Maybe Rush was, Rush read one of your articles years ago. And I, I it might have been about that. But now it's part of the national dialogue. I hear on the news all the time, I'll hear 
people that I don't expect kind of drop in. You know, they're gaslighting us. And so I just think, uh, first of all, that's, that is a case where building awareness, and I, I give you credit for much of that on that issue, has awakened people to, you're be, they're playing you. You're, they're playing you. It's, you're being gaslighted. Right. So, all right, back to, okay, so you've got two more things we can do. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. The game plan that people need to be aware of it. That's right. Uh, and and secondly, um, it's it's really important that we defend and guard and cultivate our personal relationships in the private sphere of life. The example you just held out, Sandy, about going after parents, and you know that this DOJ, the Department of Justice, tried to get parents. Uh, tagged as domestic terrorists just for speaking out at school board meetings. This is all of a piece. This is all part of that. And so we have to absolutely guard and cultivate good relationships with our family, neighbors, friends, uh, communities, because, you know, family breakdown leads to community breakdown. And then, you know, we become more and more atomized. But the other thing about these strong relationships in family, in our faith, institutions of faith and, and strong communities is that that's where we get our strengths. That's where I get, that's where we get the courage to speak up against uh, this tyranny, uh, the courage to resist that pull, that very powerful pull of the conformity impulse. It comes right from that hidden sphere of life. In fact, Vatra Pavel, wrote that essay called The Power of the Powerless, where he talked about how the hidden sphere is where all of this comes, you know, all of this power of the individual comes through. And we have to understand that that free speech is use it or lose it. We can't, you know, we can't assume it's just going to be there for us. If we, you know, if we stay silent, that creates a ripple effect, what's called the spiral of silence, that allows these evil agendas to take root. Got to stop that. We got to just keep talking and and especially help other people speak out as well. Stella, if we're silent, yeah. You know, I, I want to ask you. This is kind of a, a double a question. A do, what's like one of those Russian? Uh, can I, I don't know what to explain. It's got t- a twist, and that is uh, uh, as a, as a Christian, I'm asking you as a Christian that I know that you are. If you thought through why churches and Christians. Uh, so many fell for this delusion over COVID, uh, and not the COVID, not the illness being a delusion, but the, the lockdowns submitted so willingly and actually chastised uh, uh, others that didn't uh, didn't believe that it was legitimate. Uh, wh- what is the dynamic there? Have you had a chance to think about that? Oh yeah, no that that is a really unsettling uh, piece there because. Uh, if anything, churches uh, or clergy are, you know, supposed to be there no matter what. I mean, you know, you've read about maybe Father Damien who, who served in leper colonies. Um, so I think initially it was in good faith with a lot of them. But when it became clear that this was a scam, uh, they should have just stopped. They shouldn't have let it go on for that long. I think um, I think the churches in many cases have been infiltrated. I guess that's all you know that that with with these uh, you know woke ideologies, with these um, you know with with all of this um, 
all these damaging dynamics. Uh, and and so that's what's going on with that. And, and I, what I would okay. say to that is if you're a member of a church that's going in that direction, you speak up. I think yep. that's part of the problem, too, is parishioners uh, may not have recognized it and spoken up when these things were happening. All right, and, Stella, we're, uh, we're running out of time, so I'm going to jump in with the last question. And that is... Yes. Um, Look, you were a CIA intelligence agent. You were an expert on Russian propaganda and the very things we're talking about. Where do you see us on the spectrum, and can you see us pulling back from that? I, I okay. I I, I want to be an optimist, <laughs> and uh, but I see us pretty far down the, this uh, path to totalitarianism, but. Uh, you know, we're kind of, it feels kind of like we're in the fourth quarter, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't think there's like only two seconds left on the clock. I think we definitely have time. I see people waking up all over the place. I see people waking up who used to belong to that mindset who have said, oh, I've had enough of this. Uh, you know, we see people leaving that. Uh, and, and that gives me a lot of hope. I think, I think, uh, but the, the critical piece is, you know, we're, we're millions to say they're hundreds in, in a ratio of things, or billions of their hundreds. Uh, and they just have a monopoly on, uh, they have all the megaphones and everything. Uh, we, yes. we can take over that just by understanding that one person makes a huge difference in speaking oh, up. You well, sound like, you, my person. listeners are going to say, you sound like Sandy Rios, Stella Morbido. But oh. <laughs> that's because I learned well, from Stella. That's because I learned well. from Stella. All right, the book is called The Weaponization of Loneliness. The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide and Conquer. It's a great book. It's readable. You should read it and share it with your friends and your children, your adult children, your, you know, the, the adult children, your high schoolers. This would help them to understand what's happening and stop it, stop it right now while we still can. Stella, thank you so much for so much of your time today. We appreciate it so much. Uh, This has been Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.